Hey, welcome everybody to the Scola Christi. I'm Father David Abernathy from the Pittsburgh Oratory. And uh, this group was created uh, specifically for adults who come to the Oratory uh, as a way of continuing formation. It's a once a month, once a month group. And uh, over the years, I've tried to focus a lot on uh, Eucharistic spirituality, in particular since we have perpetual adoration uh, at the Oratory. And, uh, and since certainly the Eucharist is a source and summit of our faith, I think the way that we approach uh, what sanctifies us the most in the life of faith is, is very important. And I'd like to continue that tradition uh, of talking about the Eucharist and how we participate in it uh, throughout, I think, the fall semester. Uh, in particular, by looking at the writings of Romano Guardini. And he might not be as familiar to some of you. It's a 20th century thinker, and some think he's one of the best of the 20th century. Uh, 20th century uh, considered a servant of God, uh, so lived a holy life. Uh, but he wrote uh, a number of works, one called The Spirit of the Liturgy, and another called Meditations Before Mass. And it's a beautiful little book. Um, not overly theological, but uh, focuses on how it is that we approach the liturgy. Uh, and those things that uh, foster uh, both externally and internally the, the attitude that we would want to approach the celebration of the Eucharist with. And tonight we're going to be looking in particular at holy stillness. Uh, I could have chosen a lot of different paths for this. Uh, over the years we've uh, done a lot of uh, readings on, uh, from the Desert Fathers, uh, from the Hesychastic, uh, tradition. Hezekiah means stillness, and uh, stillness is a way in the East of knowing God, to quiet one's external life as well as one's heart, and to seek purity of heart and unceasing prayer. It creates a kind of internal stillness that allows us uh, to hear God as he speaks to us. And so I thought about approaching it that way, and also uh, through a newer work, by Cardinal Sarah, or Sarah, I'm not sure how to, to pronounce it. It's called The Power of Silence. It's an extraordinary book. I think it's destined to be at least a modern classic and uh, really beautifully written. Uh, he's a cardinal from Africa and uh, spends also a great deal of time at uh, Carthusian uh, monasteries uh, doing his retreats, lengthy retreats and regular retreats with them. Uh, the Carthusians certainly see silence and stillness as an essential part, uh, not simply of the monastic life, but for all Christians. It's through silence that God speaks to us. And they would even say that silence is the language of God, that when we immerse ourselves in stillness and silence, we allow God to speak a word that is equal to himself. And so you begin to see why fostering both an external and an internal stillness and silence becomes so important. Human language, in a sense, fails us. We have to still ourselves in order to listen to God at the depth of our, our being. Uh, but bypassing uh, these uh, two works, I thought would instead focus on Romano Gordini. Uh, I was first introduced uh, to the text by a seminary professor. It was uh, one that was first given to me in spiritual direction. And so I thought going back to it would be a good thing to do, and it's proven to be quite fruitful. And so we're going to read his first section 
entitled Holy Stillness and discuss that tonight. If you look at the pamphlet I've prepared for you, the italicized print is just a little bit of my commentary. Hopefully it won't muddle things. And uh, then the regular print is Guardini's writing. And uh, as always, we like to start at the oratory uh, and end uh, a group with a hymn. And so if you'd like to stand, we're going to read little, or sing all, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And who would like to intone this here for us tonight? Since there are so many women, I don't want to uh, start too low. I don't think that would be a problem. I don't think you worry about starting okay. too low. <laughs> Our hope is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing is Holy Stillness with, from the writings of Romano Guardini for those who came in late from his work called Meditations on the Mass or Before Mass, excuse me. 
And uh, this is the first meditation, very beautifully written. As I mentioned, not overly theological, but I think doing exactly what the Second Vatican Council, even though he precedes it, doing exactly what we want us to do, uh, to uh, seek to understand in a deeper way what it is that we are engaged in in the celebration of Mass, what it means to truly participate and participate fully, and to look at this not in a superficial way, but really look to the wisdom of the Church uh, to guide us. And uh, so I hope you enjoyed as, as, as much as I have in, in reading it. Again, the italicized print is my commentary, and so we'll begin with that here this evening. It's curious to think in, in our day that one of the most beautiful aspects of the Latin Rite liturgy is the presence of silence. Uh, so built into our liturgy in the West is silence, periods of silence. Uh, you'll notice that there are certain prayers that the priest himself says silently to himself. There are periods where the congregation sits and participates simply in silent prayer, although that might not be as much the case in many parishes today, but it's meant to be so, that there would be periods where we, before this great mystery, would be silent in mind and heart in order to allow God to speak to us on a deep level. And you might contrast this with some of the Eastern Rite liturgies, if you've ever had the opportunity to participate in them. It mimics more uh, the worship of the angels in heaven. There's a kind of constant singing and chanting that takes place during the liturgy, uh, at least in most Eaton, Eastern Rite, I almost said Eaton Park, Eastern Rite <laughs> churches, uh, now, some, many of them have pews, but often they would be standing as almost like servants in, a, in attendance. So uh, it would be a much more active and engaged participation in that way. Whereas in the West, we would have periods of silence that we might be attentive, uh, not only to the prayers that, we, that are being said, but also uh, attentive to the presence of God in our midst. Uh, I say curious because it is so little found today or fostered, and I know this is a source of aggravation for many in the church today, that often uh, going to Mass early to prepare oneself uh, to pray in silence can often be very difficult. I think we've lost that sense of coming into church, sitting down or kneeling down in silence, praying in order to prepare oneself for the liturgy, or afterwards uh, rather than leaving quickly to kneel down and offer thanksgiving to God for the Eucharist that we've received. And uh, I think what we often find is uh, sort of conversations taking place uh, within the main body uh, of the church, which makes that, that kind of silent prayer and preparation very difficult. And uh, I'm not trying to be heavy-handed with this. I think this is simply the reality that we face in our, our day, and part of it has to do with a lack of catechesis. I think it falls upon parents and it falls upon the pastors of the church to create an environment that uh, does allow this holy stillness and silence to, to develop in order that we might enter into the liturgy as fully as possible. Uh, to do so seems to violate the freedom of distraction that individuals fight to maintain. A confrontation with silence is too frightening a thing in a culture that thrives on perpetual diversion. And so we are faced in our culture 
with a constant stream, a constant flood uh, of music, of, of imagery, of chatter, uh, and conversation that makes it very difficult, I think, then when we do come into church and we do have that opportunity to enter into a deep silence, it makes it very difficult for us to quiet our, our mind. And uh, even if we struggle to do so, we can find ourselves, and Guardini will address this, we can find ourselves shifting, moving our position, coughing, uh, not even consciously, but uh, just to uh, get ourselves away from a kind of a silence that can be discomforting, that can make us uncomfortable with our own selves and our own thoughts. Any attempt to speak of the value of silence is met with either polite disregard or with suspicion. And I remember when I was a, uh, a young student at Pitt, and I wasn't even Catholic at this point, and at that point, Mass was held over at the Graduate School of Public Health, <coughs> excuse me, in an auditorium, which was not conducive to silent liturgy, uh, with the slamming down of the desktops. I don't know if you remember those that would come up and swing over. And uh, I came in early for Mass, and I would just put my head down and was praying. And there, were, there was a couple, very nice, but they looked over and said, oh, oh isn't it nice? He's, he's praying. <laughs> and I remember feeling sort of conspicuous at that point, as, as if I was doing something wrong by praying before Mass. I should be chatting with those around me. Uh, so I think, again, we've gotten away, even from those who have a great love for the church and have a great love for the liturgy uh, of a sense of trying to foster this, this silence. Uh, came across an article recently uh, that described concern for maintaining a prayerful setting for worship as a reflection of narcissism. And I found myself burst out into laughter when I, I read it. It claimed that external distractions pull people out a focus on self and internal distractions that masquerade as prayer. So this is the idea. The chatter and the movement in the churches actually uh, pull people off balance and take their focus off of themselves and what they think is prayer. So basically the article was saying that the desire for silence is an illusion that people are, are creating for themselves. And so allowing them to shift uh, their prayers onto the needs around them, we should allow this kind of conversation and distraction to take place and not make a big deal of it. And so it creates a little bit of a straw, they're creating a little bit of a psychological straw man there. If you want prayer, if you want silence, you're a narcissist. You're turned in on yourself rather than seeking to turn to God. This is the height of the ridiculousness that we found ourselves in uh, in, pres in the present day. And I don't want to spend a lot of time, obviously, uh, addressing the absurdity of this. Uh, if you want to talk about it during the question time, that's fine. Uh, but I do want to talk about Guardini's work, uh, Meditations Before Mass. And, uh, and he emphasizes, again, I think what is painfully absent in our day, and that, that is the holy stillness. And so this is how he begins. And I, again, I want to treat this as a kind of a group Lexio Divina, 
Uh, so if there's anything as we're reading along that strikes you or you want to talk a little bit about, about it or it doesn't seem to make sense, uh, don't hesitate to raise your hand and stop me even mid-sentence. That's fine. When Holy Mass is properly celebrated, there are moments in which the voices of both priest and faithful become silent. The priest continues to officiate as the rubrics indicate, speaking very softly or refraining from vocal prayer. The congregation follows in watchful, prayerful participation. What do these intervals of quiet signify? What must we do with them? What does stillness really imply? And so the rubrics, which uh, may have fallen out of our understanding as well, the rubrics are the, the little things written in red in the sacramentary that the priest is supposed to do and follow while he's uh, offering the, the mass. So the priest isn't supposed to make up little things on his own and he's not to uh, change the prayers in any ways. He's to follow the mind of the church and to celebrate the liturgy as it's meant to. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel to uh, Rome uh, early in my priesthood and we went through the catacombs of St. Sebastian and there was graffiti written on the catacomb walls and they would have mass often in the catacombs and one, of the, one bit of graffiti was a person complaining about the priest saying the silent parts out loud, that he was verbalizing the things that were meant to, to be silent during the liturgy. And this goes all, the, it was like back to the earliest centuries mm -hmm. of the church. And so they had a sense, you know, right from the beginning, that there was something about the Latin Rite liturgy that did include this, and the per priest, uh, even in the position that he is uh, in the liturgy, uh, should not uh, alter those willy-nilly, that they're there for a reason, that the liturgy has this built-in stillness and silence. And so Guardini does well to ask us here, what do these intervals of stillness mean for us? That it's not uh, empty space that is meant to be filled. And so we're meant to ask ourselves, what are we to be doing during these periods of time? And so he says, it implies above all that speech end and silence prevail. Fairly simple. So be quiet <laughs> and stop speaking at this time. That no other sounds of movements, of turning pages, of coughing and throat clearing be audible. There is no need to exaggerate. Men live and living things move. So I'm not being strident here, neither is Romano Guardini. Uh, he starts out with the negative aspects of stillness and silence. So be patient here. He's not uh, being overly strict in saying this. Uh, so he says, uh, things move. A forced outward conformity is no better than restlessness. So a priest giving dirty looks to people in the congregation or rebuking them is not what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, if there's need for catechesis, then it should be done, but not with uh, a heavy hand, in other words. Nevertheless, stillness is still. And uh, <laughs> that, again, might sound a little bit simplified, but external 
stillness fosters internal stillness. And often you can see with children that's a difficult thing. Uh, the ability to contain themselves, sit still already, quit fidgeting, is a difficult thing. It's not natural to them. It's something that has to be taught over time, and as they mature emotionally, they're able to contain their own, own feelings or, and be able to focus with a greater clarity. And that's another reason we shouldn't get angry at children if they fidget, because often they don't have the capacity to do otherwise. So stillness is still, and it comes only if seriously desired. And if you were to circle one thing, it would be this, that we would de desire stillness in the same way that we would desire any other virtue, that we would long for stillness in our lives. And this is the difficult thing, again, in our generation, because we've made this uh, shift. There's been a cultural trend to constant noise, to constant diversion. So to desire something like stillness and silence is to set yourself apart. And it can feel awkward at first. Am I doing the right thing? Is this too strident? Uh, we can become frustrated if it's not the normal course of, of things. And this is where we have to challenge ourselves. That do we uh, create a kind of space in our lives where we allow ourselves to develop that desire for stillness? Do we take the opportunity to turn off the television or not have a television, uh, to shut down the computers, to turn off the car radio, to, as uh, Guardini will say to us a little bit later on, do we treat the beginning of the Sabbath as a time to preparing ourselves for the deeper stillness of, of the Mass? So on Saturday night, Saturday evening, do we enter into the Sabbath in such a way that we are preparing ourselves to, to enter into the liturgy? Or are we engaging like many uh, of us do, I think, on Saturday nights? This is our time to play. And so to go to the movies or a football game, baseball game, uh, that this is often the norm of behavior for us. And so the thought of preparing ourselves by, oh my gosh, staying home on a Saturday night uh, and reading uh, a book on the spiritual life or reading the readings for the Mass for the next day, uh, this would be the way ultimately that we would, would want to prepare. Or simply just a quiet evening, I think, where we allow our, our minds to slow down a little bit. If we value it, he writes, it brings us joy, if not discomfort. And so it's only as we create this desire and we begin to have a taste of stillness and, and silence in our life that we also begin to experience something of the joy of it. It's no longer painful for us, but it becomes something that's en enriching and it uh, brings a kind of renewal to us. And we've talked many times uh, about the adoration at the oratory. And for some students, it's the first time they've ever heard of Eucharistic adoration of all, at all. They've never uh, witnessed it in, in their parishes and have never uh, really had to sit in a kind of radical silence focused upon Christ and listening to him in such a way. And when we first started, it was interesting to watch the transformation take place over time. 
you know, often students would take a holy hour a week and you would see them, they'd come in with a stack of books this thick and there would be a lot of shifting and looking around and discomfort with the silence. Uh, but if they stayed with it over the course of the semester, you began to see this kind of transformation take place, that a kind of stillness gradually developed. They would begin to look forward to that hour during the week when they could have adoration. No need anymore to bring in a, a big stack of books. They could allow themselves simply to be in the presence of the Lord. And over the course of the years at the oratory, there also has been a transformation that has taken place for the community as a whole, the congregation as a whole, that since adoration goes right up to the beginning of Mass, people come in now, and you know our latest Mass at night, at 9 p.m., and filled with students, is almost the, the most reverent, because it's, it's gotten dark out, and the chapel becomes very sort of meditative and prayerful, and the students come in, the Eucharist is exposed, and they kneel down and they pray. And you could hear a pin drop. But over time, it, it has come through fostering that and allowing that to emerge and uh, supporting it uh, uh, in the sense that you know, the priests would you know, tell people, if you want to talk, go outside the chapel. We're exposing the Eucharist now for, for adoration and explain why it is that we are doing it. And it's taken you know, seven to ten years for, for that to emerge. But it's understood now that this is how you enter into this chapel and this is the fruit of it, a kind of joyful peacefulness and preparation for the Mass. I've been babbling on for a little while now. Anybody have any thoughts or comments about what Guardini says or what I've said so far? Yes. Father, I would just add that uh, a couple of years ago, I went on my first silent retreat. I went down to uh, Holy Cross Abbey down in Berryville, Virginia, which is really such a wonderful location. But you know, on the drive down there, my mind was bouncing all over the car, listening to different CDs or the radio or, or singing to myself. And then after being immersed in that for a week, coming home in complete, absolute, still silence, and feeling very comfortable in that space, right. that it really does quiet your mind and, and put you in a more natural life rhythm. <coughs> but I tell you, uh, confronting the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike in that mindset is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And even if you do get radio stations, they're not very good. But just the rush of traffic and the, yeah. the pace that you realize, wow, everything is, it just is moving at this frantic pace all the time. Right. But when you go into a situation like this where you can be still and quiet, mm -hmm. you get into a natural rhythm and you can really be much more, I think, attuned right. to life. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think taking extended retreats on occasion uh, allows that kind of stillness and love for silence to emerge. When we can take five days or a week, or even a weekend, three, you know, three days, an extended weekend, to immerse ourselves in a deep way, go to a Trappist monastery or a Carmelite monastery. It, it can deepen our prayer life the rest of the time. And uh, if I were to encourage you to do something, it would be make many retreats 
for yourself. You're not limited to going to a monastery. If you have a Saturday afternoon where you have two or three hours, come and sit for those two or three hours before the Blessed Sacrament. Allow yourself to feel that bit of discomfort and yet remain until things become slowed down within the heart. This is why we have the First Friday Vigil, certainly uh, to practice the uh, First Friday devotions to the, the Sacred Heart, but also to give the opportunity for an extended period of time uh, of silent prayer. And you can tell that you know the first hour is difficult, the second hour is really difficult, and then by the third hour the, the mind and body has been humbled because you become tired, but the fatigue sort of slows things down. And that's often when the, the deepest kind of prayer takes place. And so we don't have to go to a, a monastery even to do it. I think it should be a regular part of our, our life. We, we know naturally, I think, to do this in terms of our, our physical life, that sometimes we have to get away from the work and get out and, and walk in the countryside, things such as that. But often when it comes to the spiritual life, you know, it can get to the point where it's, you know, in for Mass on Sunday, out quickly back to the things that, you know, are important to us or that have to be done. And so we, we can lose this sense very quickly. The first time I went, to that it was the Trappist Monastery. The first time I went to the Trappist Monastery, they put me in a room where the windows were at the top of the ceiling. And so you could only see sky. And... Uh, I about went nuts, and, <laughs> and I, I remember I was reading one book, and I stopped, and I was praying silently, and I got this thought in my mind, oh, you should pick up that book, and you should read from that, and I felt myself, I got up and made the step to pick up the book in order to distract me, rather than to remain in the silence, that I needed to have something there to hold my attention, because the, the silence was deafening. It's too hard to endure. Okay, let's move on. Oh, wait, Jim, did I see your hand go up in the back? Marnell. Okay. Okay. People are often heard to say, but I can't help coughing, <laughs> or I can't kneel quietly. Yet once stirred by a concert or a lecture, they forget all about coughing and fidgeting. Have you ever been like to a theater or a movie where it's you know the action, nobody's moving, or to a symphony, you could hear uh, a pin pin drop, or to the theater for a play, when people are fully engaged and want to be in that moment. I think the theater doesn't, as they say, maintain the illusion. Isn't that the idea that so that, that you can enter into the play as it's taking place? They don't want people coming in late and disturbing that, and so they lock the, the doors. And, uh, but it's all meant to, to foster that intense attention so that they can enter into the play in a deeper way. Well, we're participating in the most magnificent drama of all. We're being drawn into the life of the Most Holy Trinity, and so the way that we enter into the chapel and the way that we enter into Mass should be, uh, the sense of this should be even more heightened, that we would really 
you know, be in awe of what's taking, taking place and attentive to what's being said, the, the actions, the movements uh, that are taking place at the, at the altar so that we can be drawn into the mystery. The stillness proper to the most beautiful things in existence dominates the quiet area of attentiveness in which the beautiful and truly important reign. We must earnestly desire stillness and be willing to give something for it. Then it will be ours. Once we've experienced it, we will be astounded that we were able to live without it. It's an important thought that, you know, after we have fostered the desire, after we've developed the taste for it, we'll wonder how we lived without Eucharistic adoration. How did I get through a week without having this time or a day? Or how did I you know, get through this day without going to Mass? Uh, and when I've come to experience it to be such a wonderful and beautiful thing. And so we have to allow ourselves to go through that period where maybe things are difficult for us, or maybe it seems boring, uh, or, or where we have to force ourselves to pray, force ourselves to stay. We have this sense, I think, that prayer should be spontaneous, that it should come natural to us and maybe be easier. I think we think because it's the relationship with God that we should be you know, moved uh, and consoled and on fire without having to bring anything of ourselves to this, including you know, bringing the work or the asceticism of stillness to it. Uh, if you were to talk to any monk, it takes years, decades, to develop this kind of, of holy stillness. And it's also tied to a fostering of purity of heart and of unceasing prayer. So throughout the course of the day, that we're not just letting our mind wander, that we are constantly turning back to God, you know, as the... As air is for the body, so is prayer for the soul. And so as much as and as often as we breathe to make our way through the day, as much we should be praying as much in order to stay in this constant union and communion with God. And as we do this, then, we, we develop that discipline that allows us to enter into it with a greater ease. So, first of all, then, to be desired. What Guardini captures here is essential. Silence does not happen spontaneously. It has to be desired as a good, fostered, and we must willingly make certain sacrifices to attain it. Few in our day have tasted true stillness and the beautiful fruit it produces in the soul and in the liturgy. And so we aren't going to be spoon-fed this anymore, uh, you know, in terms of our uh, spiritual and religious education, uh, we have to take it upon ourselves to uh, in engage in spiritual readings like something from the Philokalia or Cardinal Seurat's book, The Power of Silence, in order to foster that desire, to understand it uh, more uh, fully in our lives, to have it firmly etched in our mind in regards to its, its importance. So we have to you know, be willing to make that sacrifice, and it has to be something that's practiced. 
Moreover, he writes, stillness must not be superficial, as it is when there is neither speaking nor squirming. Our thoughts, our feelings, our hearts must also find repose. And so it isn't simply about shushing people in the congregation or you know, tying up and holding children so they can't move. This has more to do with the adults and what it is that we are fostering within ourselves. If we were only to make it that, it would have no impact upon our lives. Uh, simply, you know, that we're sitting like statues. Um, you know, there could be nothing going on there, let alone a true desire and hunger for God. And so there, our stillness has to be something far more than, than what we've described. Then genuine stillness permeates us, spreading ever deeper through the seemingly plumbless world within. Once we try to achieve such profound stillness, we realize that it cannot be accomplished all at once. The mere desire for it is not enough. We must practice it. The minutes before Holy Mass are best, but in order to have them for genuine preparation, we must arrive early. There are not a time, they are not a time for gazing or daydreaming or unnecessary thumbing of pages, but for inward collecting and calming ourselves. So getting early to Mass, uh, you know, I think we've all seen you know, individuals, you know, come 20 minutes late and leave right after communion. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the purpose of that? There's part of us that really compromises the grace of God that is being offered to us at that moment. If we're entering into Holy Mass and coming late as we would to a party, then we haven't understood anything of what's taking place at the altar. You know, I think if we're able to understand that we're at the foot of the cross, you know, we're not going to be looking at our cell phones because we fill them hum in our pockets, or uh, we're not going to be thumbing through the hymnal. You know, we're going to be gazing at the altar, focusing upon the crucifix, or focusing on the Eucharist if it's exposed for adoration. Uh, this is what we're going to be doing, and you can only do that if you come early. Not just to get the best seat, but uh, in order to enter into the mystery. It would be still better to begin on our way to church. So as Matthew was saying, you know, the ride home from the monastery was quiet. Uh, the radio wasn't blaring. And I think the same would be true for us on our way to church. That if it's a family, maybe saying a rosary or Divine Mercy Chaplet or just trying to remain quiet, you know, to uh, foster that attitude, okay, we're going someplace special, and, and in order to experience the fullness of it, we want to be quiet, try to be quiet. Not that that will work with little children, but <laughs> got to start somewhere. Where did I leave off? I lost my... Why not let the way there? It would be still better to begin. Yes, okay. After all, we are going to a sacred celebration. Why not let the way there be an exercise in composure, a kind of overture to what is to come? 
I would even suggest that preparation for holy stillness really begins the day before. Liturgically, Saturday evening already belongs to the Sunday. If, for instance, after suitable reading, we were to collect ourselves for a brief period of composure, its effects the next day would be evident. Uh, Composure is one of the other meditations that follows along in Guardini's book. Uh, It's a way that we begin to hold ourselves in the face of this sacred celebration. Uh, If you've ever seen uh, a picture of a person who's engaged in deep prayer, you understand it or you've you've seen it, the kind of uh, composure on their face, a calmness, a stillness that is reflected in their very countenance. And again, this is something that only comes over the course of years, in gazing at them or being near them. Uh, it even affects us that we pick up something of that holy stillness from them. And so go to Mass with someone who is very prayerful and still, and or someone that you know loves the Eucharist. It, I think it does make an enormous impact on the way that we enter into it. Again, astutely, Guardini notes that preparation for such stillness begins not with the start of the liturgy, but at the beginning of the Sabbath, the evening before. The desire for stillness must be such that it leads us to begin the moment, the movement to still the mind and the heart and regain the kind of composure that will become fully evident the following day. Saturday evening is often the time of heightened distraction rather than the the beginning of a fast from those things that fragment the mind and the heart and lead to dissipation. And so I've already mentioned this, that Saturday evening uh, is often that time that fragments the mind. It's not an easy thing uh, to to bring the the mind to a a state of quietude and to, to... to still the thoughts. There's been some studies, and I've shared this with many in the group before, that say that we have anywhere between uh, 4,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day. It's a large range, but it's an enormous amount of, of thoughts. And so if we're daydreaming and our minds wandering all over the place, it can become very difficult then to move to stillness, to silence the thoughts altogether. And so this is why the Desert Fathers in particular began the practice of uh, the Jesus prayer, the invocation of the name of Jesus throughout the day, that it would move away from that multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity of thoughts. So even while they would be engaged in their work or they would be walking along the way, they would be reciting the, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. With every breath, they would do this. And so gradually, that stillness would begin to emerge for them, and they would try to maintain this without ceasing. Living in the world, admittedly, that can be much more difficult to foster, but not an impossibility, and certainly something that we shouldn't set aside as though it has no value to us in our practice. In fact, We should be seeking to do it even more, I think, given what we are faced with on a day-to-day basis. If we know that there is a barrage of things coming at us, 
uh, constantly throughout the day. I think trying to move away from that by the practice of this prayer or something similar, rosary or the Divine Mercy Chaplet or even the name of Jesus throughout the course of the day, that we would be move, moving away from that. Um, I have a cousin in advertising, he owns his own advertising uh, company, and he posted an article once that uh, was reflecting about how advertising is being done, and you know it's moving away from anything that's too substantive in content. So maybe a few words, maybe a sentence, and then a lot of pictures that the mind now can't focus uh, in the same way that it did. And I think it's true for us, you know, when we watch television or when we're on the internet, there's this constant rapid movement of images that really, if you engage in that for a long period of time, if you expose yourself to it, you become agitated. Uh, I've talked to, in particular, guys who pray, play video games, and they'll sometimes like play them for eight hours straight, and after it's done, they're done, they're, they're agitated. It's like they've been drinking coffee for eight hours straight. It's because of the hyper-stimulation that, that takes place there. And so these are the kind of things that, you know, when Guardini talks about sacrifice, making sacrifices, there are choices that we have to make in our life. And what are we going to set aside in order to have that which is far more precious to us? You know, are we going to choose something like video games and television or other things, or are we going to choose those silent moments with God that offers us a share in a love, a, a life that is without measure? That Carthusian image uh, I found very powerful of allowing God to speak a word that is equal to himself. That if we could quiet ourselves and enter into a kind of absolute silence and be attentive, it's not like a, sort of a Buddhist mindless thoughtlessness where we're trying to drive out every thought just to have a kind of calm or peacefulness. It's always radically personal for us as Christians. But if we are to silence our mind and heart and be radically focused upon God, we allow him then to speak a word that he desires to speak to us at that moment. So often discernment in our day becomes more a person sort of thinking through what they think is a good idea. And, you know, whether it fits with their, you know, perception of reality or their judgment, you know. But when we enter into this kind, kind of silence and stillness where we allow God to speak a word that he wants to speak, it's not necessarily going to make us feel comfortable. Or it's not necessarily going to be something that we understand at first. It might shake us up, or it might challenge something about our life. But if we never have that stillness and silence, we're always placing something between ourselves and God that becomes an impediment. It makes it very difficult for us to hear him. And I think this is what we see often happening in the church, and uh, even uh, among those who are to be teachers, preachers uh, of, the, of the faith, that often... Um, you know, what is being put forward is, arises out of feeling or out of personal opinion or, or perception. And it's not as though those things don't have a part of our spiritual life. They do. We're, we're human beings. We have feelings, emotions. But 
you know, often there's uh, not just uh, a setting aside of judgment, of reason, but a setting aside of faith, where we listen to God and allow him to make known to us a truth that is not known by reason alone. Allow him to reveal himself to us and what we are called to in life. And when we think about it, you know, when we think about prayer, uh, often we have a notion of what that would be for us and even what really good prayer would look like for us too. Well, every day I would do this and this and this. But if we are listening to God on a deep, deeper level, our life might look radically different. Maybe God's calling us to a far greater intimacy than we ever imagined and to set aside things that are benign or even that we love or that are enriching in order to have that in our life. And this is where we go back to the beginning of Guardini's writing saying, you know, part of stillness can make us feel un uncomfortable. And so there can be a kind of psychological and spiritual resistance that we have to overcome in ourselves. Because we feel the dif difficulty of it and the pain of it, we want to, to push it aside. And it's only when we overcome that then that we can say, okay, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And be willing to hear what he's, he's asking of us. Any thoughts or comments as far? Yes. Um, I, I think I gave you this book, but I read this book about this... Um, Hermit, <laughs> and her, I mean, her experience is extreme, and certainly we're not all called to that mm -hmm. lifestyle, but uh, one of the things that, it's good to read the extreme, though, right, because you can, you can see things that you couldn't otherwise see, right. because it's granular, but um, what, what I learned, what I think is really important is just the healing, the healing that we need right. in the silence, the de defense mechanisms we have. I want to pick this up, and now I want to pick that up, or I want to listen to this song, or, you know, we have such defense mechanisms because we're not really willing to sit with either the pain or the thought or the right. whatever it is. And we also, sometimes we don't even know the wounds of sin. That's right. Um, and we have to shed that skin. Right. That's and very... You saw that in that hermit. Right. And it's an very excellent... Intensely. Excellent point. You know, it's... You know, Guardini admits that he starts out with the negative. But the positive is this, when we have this kind of stillness in our life, and you're right, looking to those who embrace it in a more radical fashion, the Desert Fathers are the best psychotherapists. They're the earliest psychoanalysts, but they knew the workings of the mind and the heart with an intense clarity because they entered into that silence in a radical way, and they knew what came out of the unconscious, and it often wasn't pretty. They could see what they were capable of, and they could see that even if going off into the desert by themselves, they were still filled with anger. You know, you, you hear that story of a monk getting mad at a piece of wood that got in his way, <laughs> and you know, cursing up a storm, you know, because it, it frustrated him. And but your point is well taken that it's in that silence that things begin to the wounds that we bear as human beings begin to emerge. And they're not just emerging into a void. They're emerging into a presence that is deeply healing. 
that can bring about a healing you know, far greater than any kind of psychotherapy could offer us. Now, you know, I speak, as you know, as one who studies psychoanalysis, I, I love it. I think clinically it's a very sharp instrument, very powerful, but in comparison to deep prayer and silence and this intimacy with the Lord where we can open our hearts to him without fear, that's where the, the deeper kind of healing takes place. You know, all the hurts and the wounds from our childhood begin to emerge in prayer, and I think adoration can be difficult for that reason. You know, people are bawling in there, you know, soaking the floor, and it's not because, you know, they're just sad, it's because a kind of healing is taking place. You know, that what they've had to contain, if you think about it, the, the amount of energy that goes into containing the, the hurt and the pain and the wounds, the anger, when we enter into that relationship with God and into that stillness, it can open up and there's a kind of freedom that comes to us, but also healing. And I don't want to make it sound like this you know, comes easily. Again, it's, it's something that comes over time and with deep intimacy and deep trust in God that develops over the course of, of years. And... It's, uh, I think, sad in some ways within uh, the, the Catholic Church that we've, we've moved away from some of the things that are most healing. You know, confession. Uh, the opportunity just often isn't there for people to participate in it. Confession was one of the ways that people would prepare for the, the Sunday liturgy. But how deeply healing that is. And also we've moved away from a lot of the devotions in the life of the Church that did allow this kind of healing and reflection to take place. Our practice of the faith has become very functional. Uh, you know, we go to Mass, we receive the Holy Eucharist, we fulfill our Sunday obligation, but we, you know, perhaps rarely enter into that experience aware of where we need healing and where throughout the week we faltered in our love for, for others and our love for God and can open ourselves up to Him in a radical way so that then our reception of the Holy Eucharist can bear the greatest fruit for us. And so you begin to see here, you know, it's he's not talking about something superficial, a superficial kind of silence and, and stillness. He's talking about something that draws us in to what is most healing for us as human beings. And if we see it this way, then we desire, we hold it precious, and we're going to, to foster the environment that allows it. Willingly to let go of things perhaps we once prized having in our life, and now they seem to be meaningless in comparison. Any other comments or thoughts? Yes. I'd like to think about the transition from the possible, the transition from the busy I guess sometimes the length of time that transition takes takes right. that I just learned to be more patient. Because at the end, it can be the stillness and silence. But I think also the more you need stillness, sometimes the longer the transition takes. Right. I think we have to be realistic about it. There are certain patterns of behavior that we have in our life. And the movement to the patterns that are going to allow for deeper prayer and stillness to emerge might take time 
you know, that we have to make a shift in our life uh, that might even involve our whole family and involve the, that conversation that allows us to change our lifestyle in order that something different can emerge for us. Because think of the impact that this could have on family life, too. That uh, the, we're not si simply speaking about intimacy with God, as we, we will see in the text, but it's also an intimacy with each other. We're not just a group of individuals uh, gathered together in a, in a room. You know, it's a congregation, all with the same focus and same purpose. We're not at a ball game watching, you know, base, baseball game take place. We're here worshiping our God as one. And so, the deeper we foster this kind of stillness in our life as a whole, we enrich and strengthen the whole community. And so, you're not in isolation in this too, in this either. That it does take time to shift those patterns, but. You're also with others who are doing it, and you mutually strengthen each other. And, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that we say that the adoration at the oratory is the most profound gift that God has given to us. You know, we have this beautiful building, a wonderful ministry, wonderful students involved, all these vocations. But in comparison, the, the, we know the, it's the adoration that has made that place. It's allowed that healing, that deep kind of healing to take place. It allows for a deeper bond to emerge there. And that this affects the, not just us, you know, all of us who participate in adoration at the oratory, but the whole community. So if you have a group of people, you know, smack in the middle of Oakland, you know, we're in the middle of these secular schools, but engaged in this deep, prayer and intimacy with God, it can have a miraculous effect over the course of time. What that might be or would look like is known, known only to God and might in many ways remain hidden to us, but it can be you know, something that's strengthening not only our community but the whole community that exists around us. It's often been said, you know, you have one prayer in the family that's going to strengthen the whole family and trans, transform it. And I think that's true of, of the church and then also of our local community. You have a group of intense prayers, it's going to enrich and strengthen everyone. Okay, where did we leave off? Okay, we're at the positive view now. Thus far we have discussed stillness negatively, no speech, no sound. But it is much more than the absence of these, a mere gap, as it were, between words and sounds. Stillness itself is something positive. Of course, we must be able to appreciate it as such. There is sometimes a pause in the midst of a lecture or a service or some public function. Almost invariably, someone promptly coughs or clears his throat. He is experiencing stillness as a breach in the unwinding road of speech and sound, which he attempts to fill with something, anything. For him, the stillness was only a lacuna, a void, which gave him a sense of disorder and discomfort. Actually, it is something rich and brimming. So he captures very well here the, the experience that we've talked about. It's, it creates a kind of discomfort. It can leave a kind of void within us that 
makes us feel uneasy. And so it's not because every person has a cold that they cough at mass or are fidgeting. Sometimes it is that that natural di discomfort they have with the silence as it, as, it emer as it emerges. Stillness is the tranquility of the inner life, the quiet at the depths of its hidden stream. It is a collected total presence of being all there, receptive, alert, ready. There's nothing inert or oppressive about it. So if you were to underline a paragraph or to memorize one, this might be it, that uh, it captures very well that you know, the silence isn't something empty, again, for us. And it's not something, as you said, that, that is uh, inert, but receptive, alert, ready, ready to receive, receive our God and what he desires to offer us. And so we don't want to approach it in a negative fashion, and certainly we don't want to present it in a negative fashion to our communities, our, our families as well. But I think we want to do our best to present it in a positive light. And I think the way we do that is really through our, our own person, through our personalities and, and allowing them to be transformed by that stillness and prayer. If we can bring that, we don't even have to worry about talking about this to people. If we are actually practicing it, then we bring it to the community in such a way that others would want, want to emulate it or at least question in their mind what, what's going on there that a person could live in such calm or be free of anxiety or so focused upon what's going on at the Mass. When I became Catholic, the first thing I noticed about the difference between Protestant church that I belonged to and Catholic church was the intense focus that the students had on what was going on at the altar. Everything was focused there and on what the priest was doing. And I'd never experienced anything like that before in my life. I didn't understand any part of it at that point. But I was used to things being cut off after the liturgy of the word. You know, there was a longer kind of sermon that was given. And, but that was the end of it. There was no movement to the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so when you see a kind of stillness come over the congregation, and then everybody intensely focus upon what's taking place at the altar, it's a very powerful experience. So you think of somebody walking into a church where this has been fostered in a powerful way, they might not have a clue about what's going on, but what they see is going to be very powerful for them. Everybody so focused upon what's going on and the way that they receive Holy Communion, the reverence there, this is what's going to speak to them. In fact, the thing that often puts off those who come to Catholic churches is the ease with which people receive Holy Communion and how there often there isn't this kind of attentiveness. Like if we really believe what it is that we say we believe, they would they expect us to be living and acting in a certain way. And so it creates kind of scandal. If you if you believe that this is the body and blood of Christ, if you believe that mystically you're at the foot of Calvary, then why aren't you acting in that way? Why why isn't it being uh, why isn't it being transforming? So stillness is not a void, but rather a receptivity. 
the tranquility of soul that prepares one to hear God as he speaks the word he desires us to receive. In truth, we should seek to live in a state of perpetual receptivity and alertness, a mindfulness of God that comes only through prayer and asceticism. We must seek to purify our desires and order our passions in order that nothing should distract us from the presence of God. And so this would be another element that I think that has been uh, lost to us. Uh, I think the Eastern Rite uh, uh, Catholics uh, speak of it with a greater clarity, but even there I think in the West there's uh, been an influence there of, of the culture to view Christianity without an essential element. The Christianity is an ascetical religion. And by ascetical, I mean that we are called to exercise our faith. This is what ascesis means, exercise. And so as we desire this stillness, as we desire this relationship with Christ, we engage in the practices that are going to bring us to this point. Most importantly, a purifying of the heart, of the passions, that you know, if we're entering into intimacy, if there's a consummation of that relationship there between bride and bridegroom, we don't want to dishonor that relationship by entering into it with uh, an impure heart or passions that have not been purified. This is why we want to go to confession in order that we might enter into that and that that grace might bear the greatest fruit possible for us. You know, that we wouldn't expect, you know, it would be heinous if a husband uh, cheated on his wife and then went home and consummated the relationship with her. You know, in, in our mind, there's something about that radical infidelity then that is even further abused by entering into it. And I think if, you know, if we're entering into this intimacy with the Lord, if we understand if it, that it is this, uh, uh, it's a nuptial relationship, that it is a consummation of love, then we want to enter into that with fidelity. And so to enter into it with purity of heart. And so never to, to receive the Holy Eucharist unworthily. Again, that distraction, that lack of stillness, I think prevents us from seeing that and also allows for a kind of herd mentality in coming up to, to receive Holy Communion. That we want to have a healthy sense of what it is that we are doing and be well prepared to enter into that, that mystery. And Paul tells us if we don't discern what's going on, there we eat and drink to our own judgment. That we have to discern the presence of Christ in, in the Eucharist and receive him in the way that he desires to be received. Uh, it's not like we're just getting a special bauble, you know, to carry along with us. You know, it's sort of interesting, you know, Ash Wednesday is a huge day and people come and get their ashes and don't stay around for the rest of Mass. And it's always amusing because ashes are a sign of mortality and we're getting them smeared on our forehead and we you know, can walk out pleased on a spiritual level that we've 
you know, gotten our special thing for Ash Wednesday, we're entering into Lent, but then we don't, we don't receive the very thing that brings healing to what we are just confessing and acknowledging, that we're sinners, that we're destined to be ashes, and so we're, we're in and out. And this, I think, is where perhaps we're failing each other uh, in how we're communicating things. I've communicated that every Ash Wednesday and still doesn't make a difference. You know, we have drive-by ash giving now. I don't know if you've seen that advertiser. People drive up in a car and somebody smears ashes on their forehead. You know, where, where it's ripped out of the liturgical setting, you know, with the readings as well as the full celebration of Mass. It makes no sense. So, where did I leave off? Attentiveness? Is that the word? Yes. Attentiveness, there should be a dash there. That is the clue to the stillness in question, the stillness before God. And so we are seeking to be attentive to the reality that we are engaged, engaged in. What then is a church? It is, to be sure, a building having walls, pillars, space. But these express only part of the word church, its shell. When we say that Holy Mass is celebrated in church, we are including something more the congregation, congregation not merely people. Churchgoers arriving, sitting, or kneeling in pews are not necessarily a congregation. It can be simply a room full of more or less pious individuals. Congregation is formed only when those individuals are present, not only corporally but also spiritually, when they have contacted one another in prayer and stepped together into the spiritual space around them. Strictly speaking, when they have first widened and heightened that space by prayer. Seems like an essential idea, you know, that we are not isolated individuals. And we can't ignore those around them, the, around us. The way that we enter into the celebration of Mass has to be attentive to those. We have to be attentive to those around us. And we have to be a means through which others enter into that mystery more fully, not an obstacle. And so the deeper we enter into prayer, the, the deeper others are going to enter into that moment as well. And we can never neglect that reality in our thinking, that somehow this is an experience between myself and Christ. It is that, surely, but for us as, as Catholic Christians, we enter into this as a body, and a body radically united that is entering, in, a bride that is entering into the most intimate relationship with her bridegroom. We do that individually, each soul is bride, but communally we do that as well in our celebration of the Eucharist. Then true congregation comes into being which along with the building that is its architecture, architectural expression forms the vital church in which the sacred act is accomplished. All this takes place only in stillness. Out of stillness grows the real sanctuary. It is important to understand this. Church buildings may be lost or destroyed. Then everything depends on whether or not the faithful are capable of forming congregations that erect indestructible churches whenever they happen to find themselves, no matter how poor or dreary their quarters. 
We must learn and practice the art of constructing spiritual cathedrals. I don't know if any of you have seen images that have come from the Middle East where there are often groups of people celebrating the liturgy in bombed out churches. You know, barely a floor and no roof. And yet they are engaged together in the celebration of the divine mystery. And they are the ones who understand what Guardini is talking about here. That it is they, they as a congregation that are entering into this mystery, that they are the ones who make up the church, even though what was an important part of it has been destroyed, uh, the building around them. So we, we don't want, want to minimize, and I think this unfortunately has been uh, a post-Vatican II kind of thing as well, minimizing the surroundings as if they are, are of no significance. They are meant to raise the mind and the heart to God, and the same thing with the music. It's not meant, neither are meant to be banal. They're to, to lift us up to God. And so we, in many, sense, in many senses, have cast off both the beauty of the buildings, the beauty of the liturgy, and then the sense of, of a congregation that we are bound together. Parishes aren't the same anymore. People come and go. There's this mobility within the culture. People don't know each other. So they're coming in and celebrating the Mass together, but as strangers, not as, again, a, a congregation uniquely united for this. By fostering stillness, we are constructing the real sanctuary where God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. Congregation is formed not only physically, but more importantly, spiritually, and the altar of sacrifice must be humble and contrite hearts. And this brings us again back to what the fathers have taught, uh, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we are to enter into this mystery with purity of heart and in the spirit of repentance. And it's there then that the, the Mass can again bear the greatest fruit for us. We cannot then take stillness too seriously. Not for nothing do these reflections on the liturgy open with it. If someone were to ask me what the liturgical life begins with, I should answer with learning stillness. Uh, there was one writer, I don't know if it's Tolstoy or I think it was him, yes, uh, he said, if I were a doctor and asked you know, what I would prescribe, the one thing I would prescribe is silence in people's lives. That this is the thing most lacking, and this is the thing that causes the great, greatest harm emotionally and physically. And Guardini is saying the same thing on a spiritual level here. If, if we are going to uh, prescribe what is most important for the revival of the church, of church life, it's silence and stillness. It's not programming. You know, it's not new classes on on things. Those are important, but it's not going to renew the life of the church. It's going to be Christ who renews the life of the church and entering into this relationship of intimacy. And he be, it begins. He tells us here with stillness, and so that's where he begins his meditations and where we we begin ours. And so we can't take it too seriously. Now, it's, you know, when it's treated with suspicion or seen as something not important, then 
you know, we're going to see the impact of that in, in our parishes. But it has to be communicated, especially by the priest, that this is something of enormous value. And again, not heavy-handedly. I mean, he has to love his congregation so much that this is, would be his constant preaching and teaching. That, and this, he would be doing everything in his power to foster it for his faithful. Or, let's see, where do I leave off? Without it. Without it, everything remains superficial and vain. Our understanding of stillness is nothing strange or aesthetic. Were, were we to approach stillness on the level of aesthetics of mere withdrawal into the ego, we should spoil everything. What we are striving for is something very grave, very important, and unfortunately sorely neglected the prerequisite of the liturgical holy act. And so, you know, it can't be aesthetic, and, you know, it can't be just entering into one's own ego. Father Drew tells a story of being at seminary, and there was you know, a priest who was uh, often in, in the chapel, and uh, Father Drew commented to him that, you know, he, was, he admired you know, his commitment to prayer. And uh, it was then that the priest divulged to him, it's actually, uh, I'm sitting in here because this is the only place I don't have to talk to anybody, I'm actually leaving the priesthood. And so, you know, it's not aesthetics and it's not hiding uh, from others or from ourselves. You know, it has to be a place that is healing and leads to a kind of deep intimacy with God and with each other. And this is what makes it so essential. Any comments or thoughts? Mrs. Crowley. Hello. <laughs> Somebody nod your back there. <laughs> That's all right. I'm used to people falling asleep during my groups. <laughs> yes. The part in the beginning where you, uh, they say that um, people will be quiet at a concert or a lecture. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, well, those things are voluntary. And you're there because you want to hear the music, you want to hear the music, you're not going to make noise. Mm -hmm. now, I go to daily mass in the church in the North Hills with them. And I get there a half hour early, and it's very quiet. Uh, and the people who are at that mass come from. I think a whole dozen different parishes. Right. Um, and I have a more of a feeling of congregation associated with masses than I do in my own parish, even though I don't even know the people at that daily mass. Mm -hmm. I don't know their names, I don't know where they're from, but I feel a mo more of a bonding with them uh, than I do, unfortunately, at Sunday mass, where I think most of the people go because they, there's a sense of obligation. Right. I think that's often true, you know, the deep love of. The mass uh, bonds people together, and there is a kind of communion that begins to develop there that can emerge into deep friendships, but not necessarily so. But they are, I think, what Guardini would describe as congregation. They have this same view and focus upon what's what's taking place, and so it can often be a, a radically different experience. Uh, of the mass. Every, everybody there is joined 
for the same purpose, and they're not coming out of obligation. There's not an obligation to go to daily mass, and so often you find a quite a different spirit there and sense of preparation. I think the same is true of adoration. I mean, I think a lot of people who do vigil hours will know that there's something really amazing about being alone with the Lord in adoration. That's amazing, but essentially adoration is liturgical, which is, you know, I guess technically you're supposed to have two or more for that reason. Um, but there is a strange sense of being with others in adoration which is odd because you're not interacting with them exactly at all. But I always find myself, like if I'm there at 8 p.m. and there's 15 people in the chapel, there really is a very intense feeling of community and communion with others and this joint experience. Everyone is there because they want to be there. And uh, especially when you sort of feel like everyone is banding together to create this very silent atmosphere and like people won't even like pick up a book or move a page because they don't want to break it <laughs> and there's something about like it's sort of like creating music with other people is so extraordinary but creating silence with people is even more extraordinary it's it's really pretty amazing adoration is a perpetuation of what takes place at mass you know we're perpetuating that worship and adoration of God and the acknowledgement of the, the gift of himself to us in the Eucharist, his presence to us, we're gazing upon the Eucharistic face of Christ. And so there, I think there is, when everybody in, in the chapel, 15 people adoring, you're all adoring the same person, the most beautiful person, Christ. And that experience together can be uh, incredibly powerful and, and something that does bind us together, you know, not in a superficial way. I think it is uh, the deepest level of our religiosity, the deepest level of our being, being as humans. That's where we meet in that common adoration and celebration of the liturgy. Yes. What also strikes me about this in a, in a beautiful way is that the notion of praying often feel like, you know, I'm just talking to God non-stop and never ceasing to listen and to try to hear that quiet, still voice that it mentions in the Old Testament. It's not heard in the thunder. God's not heard in the loud. He's heard in that quiet, still voice. And, and uh, what I really take away from this is just the importance of, in my prayer life, to listen. Right. And not to be afraid, I think, of the discomfort. I think sometimes we can feel that there's something wrong with us if we enter into that period of adoration and we feel an uneasiness within us or we're distracted. And uh, we wouldn't want to allow that to pull us away from God. And we do, I don't think we want to avoid even the, the discomfort of it. Uh, I think even when we bring in a book, it's often placing something between ourselves and Christ. You know, there's something that's mediating our our uh, connectedness there and I think we want to even set aside the uh, books and allow ourselves simply to gaze upon him realizing that there is another gazing back at us and if we feel that inner discomfort allow ourselves to feel it 
and uh, it's not necessarily a sign that something's wrong. It might be, you know, uh, evidence of a deeper healing taking place, or that we're unaware of of a wound, or or just that unease, uh, discomfort coming to the surface in order that it might be addressed more directly. And I, I know, you know, a lot of people feel that way. You know, it's just I don't feel, I, you know, I feel dry or I'm distracted, I should just get up and leave and come back later. And I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is to remain within it, remain within the Lord, and then realize that He's the one who is bringing about a transformation there. It's not only our gazing upon Him, it's His gazing upon us, and in that gaze is a deep healing. There's grace that comes to us by gazing upon the face of Christ. And if we can hold that in mind, no matter how tired we are, if we're falling asleep, or if we're distracted, or something happened to us during the day, or we're in tears, we shouldn't feel that we need to leave. What, what place would be more comforting than in the presence of Christ? Yes? So one thing uh, that I've kind of encountered is that it's very... Uh, general uh, place of perception of a trade-off between uh, like congregation and stillness uh, in some respects. Like uh, some people are like, well, I basically need to pretend like I'm the only one here because other people distract me or take away my stillness. So, um, so I guess my question is, how do you deal with like that apparent trade-off and where do you think that might come from? Yeah. I don't think it has to be a, a trade-off. I think if our love for the community, the congregation, those around us is real and genuine, even at those times where there might be frustration or a lack of stillness because of what's going on, that we would embrace that in a spirit of charity, you know, for the sake of the community, that something deeper might emerge there, or or somebody is in distress, or someone is you know, a mother struggling, you know, with a toddler or whatever that, you know, that we might be aware of that, but not give ourselves over to anger or, frustra you know, a frustration, that the frustration should be tempered by love. And so if the stillness is disrupted, not to have it disrupt us more, you know, I think if we've entered into it in, in a deep way, we probably aren't even going to notice it. You know, it will be there, but something that won't draw us away from what's taking place, let alone become something that leads us to become angry with the other. So we don't have, I don't think it's about isolating ourselves psychologically. I think if we've been formed spiritually and psychologically by the stillness and the silence, then we're going to be able to enter into that experience, whatever it might be, and have that be a transformative experience for ourselves and for others. And, you know, I think that's the way it's going to have to be, especially now, I think, where it isn't the practice to foster it, or there is an awareness. You know, it's not like uh, you can look at others and hold people at fault. I think we have a couple generations where maybe nobody's ever talked about stillness, at least not in this way. You know, maybe they think of silence as, you know, just being quiet. But, uh, or get your kid to the 
cry room kind of thing, but not uh, a stillness that allows something you know, precious to emerge and, and healing. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do in that regard. These are the things I think that we need to be, again, focused upon and what's really, what are really going to strengthen, the things that are going to strengthen our communities. Well, I was, I was actually just thinking of what Matthew was saying, because um, because in holy hours, I, I, I was recently um, reading Isaiah, and in his, in one of the prophecies, the sort of like the lengthy prophecies about the day of the Lord and the days to come, one of the like repeated things is the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And it's like over and over again, it's the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And as I was reading that, it kind of occurred to me like maybe one of my difficulties with holy hours is that I approach them as if like, okay, all of these thoughts and anxieties and worries and hopes that I carry around all day long that are in my head, now's the time that I take them to Jesus. So now I'm gonna rehash them all. And it's exhausting and completely unnecessary. It's like, he already knows it. If I'm making any attempt at praying throughout the day, I've already told him about it. Like, what if my holy hour was his turn? Like. What if I could just say, Lord, I've been talking to you all day about this thing and that thing and wondering about that. Like, what if for one hour a day, the Lord alone was exalted? And like, it was a prophetic moment of the day that all of those worries and anxieties and hopes will be fulfilled or taken care of. And so nothing will matter but him. And uh, it's really been helpful just to like, Nothing needs to happen. It's, it's his turn. It's his space. It's his time. And he already knows everything anyway. So. I think we've, lo <laughs> we've lost a little bit of that. And uh, I think Cardinal Seurat talks about celebrating the Mass at Orientum, you know, where the priest would be facing the altar with the congregation. And you could see when reading his book and then even talking about the things that, that we are, why that might be something that is important because it shifts the focus. Uh, that the focus isn't on the priest and his personality uh, so much as it, as it is on the prayers and what's taking place at the altar and the focus on the cross and, and uh, the Eucharist and just simply turning the priest around can help foster that kind of stillness. You know, sometimes it can take on too much of like this, it being like this conversation taking place or the priest is entertaining and it depends upon his personality or his gifts of preaching or speaking. And I think if we allowed Mass to be simply what it is, you know, this adoration and worship of God and our entering into that, you know, we could recapture something of that. He's called for all parishes to do that during Advent. I don't know if that will take place, but <laughs> he's exhorted parishes to do that. I don't know how it would be looked upon or if we're ready for that yet, but I could see his wisdom in saying it. Yes? So, um, obviously, liturgically, a lot of the emphasis on stillness does include physical stillness and silence, but, um, you know, like the Eastern Fathers emphasize in here in this great passage on the, um, the 
receptiveness and alertness of stillness. Um, I mean, I think one of the beautiful things is with practice and certainly adoration and church help, but ultimately you can take the stillness with you into the noise and into the action and into the activity. So you can be driving the car or surrounded by chaos or have people talking to you and that stillness is there and that receptiveness it, of the it has to It has to be that way. The, the liturgy has to be connected with our life as a whole and how we're living our lives. It can't be something that's abstracted from our day-to-day -day life or from moment-to-moment -moment in our life. Our whole life has to be movement from Eucharist to Eucharist. That's how we have to start beginning to look at our life. And so we would want to be in this constant state of receptivity, alertness, purity of heart all the time so that we would be engaged in this communion with the Lord, so that at that moment when we receive Holy Communion, again, it might produce the greatest fruit. So you're right, we don't want to turn this only into our speaking about Mass time. This is something that we would want to be fostering in our day-to-day -day life. And I mean, stillness in Mass is beautiful, but there is something about, you know, they'll have those sequences in movies sometimes, you know, or like The Matrix, or things slow down or suddenly you can see so much more because everything starts moving more slowly around you and I think in some ways carrying this kind of interior stillness can have a similar effect like things are I do that crazy. every mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think your coat opens and you know. It's called levitating. But I think spiritually it can have a similar effect and then, you know, that person who's sad or someone who needs our help or we can see them in the midst of all the chaos in a way right. that's very beautiful. Yeah. So. The, still, the stillness allows us to be attentive and alert to what's most important in our life. And I think when our schedules become so full, we do then force out uh, the presence of the other not only God, but the person who comes into our life who needs to be attended to at that moment or walks into the building or someone who you notice is having a rough day, often we can walk right past that because we are so caught up with what we're doing. Whereas if we do have this kind of alertness, attentiveness, then we are going to gravitate to those, those individuals and not be so focused upon accomplishing our task for the day. I think what it said in here is to, to, it would open you up to receptivity, and I think um, what you had said reminded me. I think that most often we want to project, you know, like ourselves, our needs, our wants, what we're feeling, instead of being receptive to what's around us. So that you know, if you can attain that kind of spiritual quietude you're going to be more apt to be receptive instead of it being a one-way projection, which I think, you know, especially as, as a society, I mean, I guess as humanity, you know, we are, we are inherently narcissistic in that way. But, um, you know, in that way, we can really be living what we're called to, which is that continuous prayer. You know, that think, think of Mother Teresa's community. You know, how deeply immersed they were in the Eucharist and Eucharistic spirituality, and they knew that this was how then that they could go out and be attentive to the needs of others and to be able to see Christ within them. That it wasn't 
you know, about them and their own strength. They weren't social workers, that all this arose out of this intimacy with Christ and intimacy with him and the Eucharist. And if they aren't listening to them and being attentive to him there, how are they going to be attentive to him in the course of the poor? Church, you know, when the church feels like it's being run too much like a business, you know, it means that we're, we're lacking. It's, the church isn't being about being efficient. In fact, in a book about Mother Teresa, the, the author talks about how in India there's this odd effect, you know, people will come out on a sunny day, you know, be like for a break, and they're all smiles, and they're talking with each other, and then three hours later they're still out there talking with each other and doing the same thing. And we would see that as laziness and inefficiency, whereas I think she saw it as intimacy. So at the oratory, we, we have ice cream breaks almost every, every day. <laughs> In the spirit of Mother Teresa, of course. <laughs> Someone recently caught us. They came into the back hall, and there's yeah. six of us sitting here like, Ooh. Oh, yeah, this is a nice place to work. <laughs> uh, any other thoughts? We've gone a little over time. I'm sorry about that. We have some coffee and dessert, if you're able to stay upstairs on the second floor. And uh, so I hope you can join us. We, when we stop this evening with the prayer of St. Philip Neri, and then the final hymn, the Church is One Foundation. So if you could please stand. I think we sing better when we stand up. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine, from looking clearly into all things. Look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Rule this army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks be to God. The church is one foundation.